Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, take two. That's right, I actually lost this um, whole recording. I recorded this episode earlier this week, lost it completely, the file was unrecoverable. Uh, I thought perchance I could save it, and it turns out I only saved the first, like, maybe three minutes of it, and then it was still unsavable. So, this is a, t a very special... This is a very special take two of this edition of Paranormal Almanac, where we're going to take a look at very specific UFO encounters, only ones in California. But first, we have shout-outs. Like them or not, we got shout-outs to Aaron, Aaron, Ah, Monsters, Lauren and David, Alicia, Amber, Andrew, Anthony, April, Seth, Audra, Austin, Autumn, Bill, Bob, Brandon, Brett, Carolyn, Carrie, Christine, Chuck, Cindy, Cole, Dan, Daniel, Devin, Dill, Donald, Dorian, Elliot, Erica, Aaron, Ezram, Harvey, Heidi, I, Isabel, J-Mark, Jade, Jaime, Jason, Jeff, Jeff, Jennifer, Jared, Jared, Jerry, Jim, Joe, Joanne, Joe, John, Joshua, Juliana, Carrie, Kelly, Kelsey, Kimberly, Kira, Lash, Laura, Laura, Laura Rutho, Lauren Mangano, and Phil. Lauren, Lawrence, Leo, Lindsay, Lorraine, M. Caballero, Martin, Matt, Matt, Megan, Mickey, Eric, Milo, Nanashi, Nick, Pablo, Paula. Ooh, I don't know this person's name. It says Pedestrian Wolf. It says Pedestrian Wolf. Normally I don't uh, shout out nicknames, but I will for that one. Rachel Reed, Robin, Rosa, Russell, Sarah, Sarah, Sean Bishop, Shelly, Sonny, Suzanne, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Tanya, Trey, Veronica, and Will. Welcome to all you new patrons. Thank you oh so much. Patrons, I have another episode I'm going to be recording later today just for you guys. It's the episode that I've been trying to record or trying to find time to record for you guys. I actually have time today, so I will be doing it a little bit later today. Next up, we have Paranormal News. Paranormal News. On this week's edition of Paranormal News, exhibit for famed UFO researcher coming to Fredericton this summer. Volunteers at the Fredericton Regional Museum, Region Museum, typically spend hours re blah, 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 blah. Fredericton Region Museum is going to have an exhibition all about Stanton Friedman, who is a UFO researcher who died in uh, May of 2019, I believe. Now, where exactly is Fredericton? Well, let's find out together because this story is not done very well. An exhibition is on its way for, Fred for Stanton Friedman. Oh, fuck you, Kurt. An exhibition is on its way for Stanton Friedman on... This is a shitty fucking inter article. So the Fredericton Region Museum is going to have an exhibition all about Stanton Friedman. And the, uh, and the museum is at 
571 Queen Street, Fredericton, New Brunswick in Canada. Now let me see if I can find out exactly when this is going to be because again, this is a terribly written article. Huh, when is it gonna be? No idea. I've now checked three articles. All three articles just say there will be a Stanton Friedman exhibit at this uh, museum, but no dates are given, no timelines, no nothing, including no addresses. So uh, Canadian newspapers or news articles on, on that are online, do your job. Give me the, the basics. When is it? Where is it? What is it about? So unfortunately, these are really crappy articles, but if you happen to live by New Brunswick, Canada, or planning on swinging up to New Brunswick, Canada anytime soon, and you go to this Fredericton Museum, hopefully they will be able to tell you when and uh, where the Stanton Friedman exhibit will be. Okay, next up in paranormal news, men claim video shows Bigfoot-like creature in Ohio's Salt Fork State Park. Two Ohio men found themselves staring at what they say resembled Bigfoot or Sasquatch in the Salt Fork State Park. They said the figure had the characteristics of Bigfoot, hairy, upright, walking, ape-like creature that dwells in the wilderness and leaves footprints. Well, that's most things that have feet leave footprints in the woods. That's just crappy. So they say that uh, Salt Fork State's Park, there are actually three locations where a Bigfoot is said to have been spotted. Morgan's Knob, where much of an episode of the Animal Planet television show Finding Bigfoot was filmed, Parker Road, also known as Buckeye Trail, and Bigfoot Ridge. Well, that just makes sense. The park's primitive campground where Kathy Lee Gifford and Hoda filmed an episode of the Today Show. In 2012, the, State Fork, the Salt Fork State Park was named as one of USA Today's top 10 squatchiest places. You know what? Just for shits and giggles, what are the rest of USA Today's top 10 squatchiest places? Nope, can't find the rest of them, so another great article. Seeing the creature was scary, said Nathan Gray of Winterset, a crossroads located just east of Salt Fork State Park. When I couldn't see it anymore, that was terrifying. When I couldn't see anymore, that was terrifying? That's weird. A video that recreates the scenes included the alleged original footage has been posted to YouTube, so let's click on that now. Wait, the hell was that? Are you not going to want to miss any of this video because there are parts throughout the entire video? No, that's dumb. It's a 10 minute video that I think I've seen maybe three seconds of the actual video of Bigfoot walking behind some trees. But I'll be honest, the way he's walking is very gentle as if somebody who really couldn't see well out of a Bigfoot costume was trying to walk through the woods. So make of it what you will. I'll put that video up onto uh, the Facebook page so you guys can say that's bullshit too. Alrighty, let's move on to the next story. This one is weird. It's a weird eyeless creature. See, I told you it was weird. A weird eyeless creature with a dolphin head and tadpole, tadpole tail washes up on a beach. A strange creature is washed up on the beach of Mexico, leading residents baffled as what it could be. They have a photo of the creature, and at first it does look like a dolphin. And I was like, well, that's just a dolphin. But then when you actually look at it, you do realize it's got like a dolphin-like beak to it. But yep, there are no eyes, there's no fins, there's no nothing. It's just like a long tadpole-like tail. They say the uh, creature appears to have the head of a dolphin, but the tail of a tadpole. It has sharp fang teeth, but no eyes. Prompting speculation has been emerged that it has emerged from the deep waters of the Pacific Ocean where no light penetrates and eyes aren't needed. Locals found the bizarre creature on the Destalardes beach on the Pacific coast of Mexico, but as of yet, nobody seems to be able to identify it. 
I, like I said, they initially thought it was a dead dolphin, but when they got closer, they did notice the differences between it. And they said that uh, in Puerto Vallarta, there is a marine area more than a thousand meters deep. Now, they speculate that it could have come from there. They don't know what it is or where it actually came from, but they do have the body and they're going to see if they can find somebody who can identify it. Up next in paranormal news, a sea monster in quotes, and that's big quotes, a sea monster remains are found in Scotland. The sizable remains of a mysterious sea creature washed ashore in Scotland this past weekend. The curious carcass reportedly appeared on a beach near the port of Aberdeen after a powerful storm swept over the area. A picture of the oddity appeared on a community Facebook page with the caption, any ideas what it could be? So, looking at it, and I'm no expert, looks to me like it's a whale or a, some kind of shark. But they said that they, uh, since it's been discovered in Scotland, near Loch Ness, a lot of people are like, oh no, Nessie died. Well, let's hope that's not the case. Again, to me, it just looks like a shark. It has the, or I'm sorry, it looks like a whale to me. Um, it just looks like that typical blobular kind of a thing whenever a whale dies and washes up on shore. But I'm no expert. And finally, in paranormal news, this is kind of like a bumper piece to an episode I just did recently. I uh, don't recall what episode. Let me see if I can find you what episode. Episode 111, The Majestic 12 Documents. I actually talked about this gentleman, two of the people that are in this article, but uh, the main gentleman, Rick Doty. I actually talked about him on that episode I just wanted to play an interview that he did recently because, like I said, it kind of goes with the piece that I've already talked about him on that MJ-12 episode. He's big into disinformation. Just keep that in mind when you're listening to this. But I did want to bring this up because I think it is very pertinent to what we were just talking about on a previous episode. It's about three minutes and 50 seconds long. I'll go into a little bit more of an explanation in a second. Spying disinformation accusations follow UFO figure Rick Doty, an exclusive interview by YourCentralValley.com. UFO organizations and researchers have long suspected that they're under some kind of government surveillance. Is that true? The answer is yes. So this guy Rick Doty is one of the most controversial figures in the history of UFOs, according to this, you know, article. He had a 20-year career with the Air Force, including years as a special agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, AFOSI. During that time, he was assigned to conduct surveillance on a scientist, Paul Benowitz. He was the one who kind of planted all this disinformation with Paul Benowitz that led to his death. He has long been considered a poster child of UFO disinformation, and I agree with that completely. And uh, he acknowledged participating in surveillance of UFO groups and in disseminating false information but he maintains that his interest in the UFO subject is legitimate and that he is now free to speak about certain programs he saw while in the military, including during a stint at Nevada's Area 51 military base. So he did an exclusive interview with George Knapp. Did you ever come to a UFO conference while working? He says, yes. An assignment? Yes. So Doty says, yes, I believe it was 83, maybe 84. I don't remember the year, but when we came here, there were four of us that came here and all we did was mingle. We took some photographs. We listened to some interviews. We made some contact with people, but nothing real serious. So here's a little excerpt of that interview that I kind of wanted to play because of the whole Benowitz stuff and the stuff surrounding this guy. Oh, the Benowitz case, you talked about that in detail, so I won't go into too much of it, but that's that's gotta be on your mind for all these years. have been blamed for driving him crazy. That's the story, right? Rick Doty drove that guy crazy. Yes, that was the story that I, uh, I brainwashed him, I fed him chemicals, 
I mean, I've heard it all. We shot beams in his head. I mean, I've heard everything, and none of it's true. Every every aspect of that is false. Paul was just was so infatuated with the subject of UFOs that he did this to himself. He was a brilliant but troubled person. Very brilliant, very troubled. He tapped into something, national security programs, that he shouldn't have had access to, that he'd somehow managed to get information about, but he also tapped into something else. He said 60% of the information he was gathering is something beyond. What, exactly. What, what is it? We don't know. We wish we knew. I set that information up. There were reports made, other investigations done, uh, scientific analysis done. They don't know. They don't know what these... Uh, UFOs or these objects that he that he photographed or how he collected signals or especially what they were most concerned with was the frequency range he was collecting frequencies that were up in a high gigahertz that we didn't have at that time period in the 1980s so it had to come from an, an ET source an extraterrestrial source not a terrestrial source you were at Area 51 not once but twice right twice as a security officer Yes, Air counterintelligence officer. So you were protecting legitimate national security programs out there? Yes. There is an aspect to UFOs in those programs, right? Absolutely. And can you, um, how much well, can you say? There's some programs, classified programs, that dealt with satellites photographing space-based objects. And now, it could be other satellites, like Soviet satellites or Chinese satellites, but there was also an aspect of that that photographed any kind of space-based objects or crafts in space, unknown. which meaning unknown crafts in space, such as uh, UFOs or uh, extraterrestrial crafts. So that information, as well as the photographs of Paul Benowitz's that you saw that were, it's a spline saucer. Where does that stuff go? <laughs> I wish I knew. It went to headquarters, it went to our headquarters, and from that point on, I would guess DIA has a repository someplace, and it went there. It was very difficult to get anything back that we sent up. Even if we legitimately needed something uh, for maybe a criminal case or something like that, or even a espionage case that uh, the FBI was involved with, and they hadn't had access to that information. So we asked headquarters, could you send it back to us so we could brief, you know, clear the FBI agents to be briefed into it. They wouldn't send it back. Among your fellow intelligence officers and counterintelligence, is there an understanding of the phenomena or an appreciation for it, or is that also stovepiped, kind of? No, I'm a member of the Retired Intelligence Officer Association, and almost exclusively, although there's some naysayers in a group, there's always naysayers in every group, because they weren't given access to certain programs. But for the majority of the ones that I meet with, 30, excess of 30 intelli former intelligence or retired intelligence officers, they all believe this is an absolute real phenomenon, UFOs, and that there's some sort of a threat, and it varied upon opinions of, of the different officers, but var varying threats to national security from these objects. Uh, from Alrighty, so that was a very quick, uh, it was a three minute, 50 second interview excerpt that uh, George Knapp did with Rick Doty. Again, like I said, remember this guy's whole thing, the only thing that he's really known for was disinformation. And despite what he says about uh, Paul Benowitz, I do think he did have a big hand in pushing Paul Benowitz over the edge. I don't think he was the most stable man ever anyway, 
But me personally, allegedly, I think that Rick Doty had a hand in pushing Paul Benowitz over the edge. Like I said, I wanted to just play that for you guys because it was pretty it was pretty much connected to that last episode. Like I said, I don't remember if it's the last episode or the one before it. Let me find out what episode that one was. The Majestic 12 episode. Um, that was episode 111. It was two episodes ago. Like I said, there was pretty much a direct connection with that episode. So I kind of wanted to play this one for you just because Rick Doty was back in the news after I just spoke about him on the episode 111 Majestic 12 documents. Alrighty, with that, let's close up Paranormal News and let's get right into... Actually, before I get right into it, I wanted to let everyone know, yes, there is new merch up at the paranormalalmanac.storeenvy.com store. There's a fantastic, absolutely amazing shirt that uh, Sean Bishop did. If you listen to the episode, I think it was episode 110. Yeah, episode 110, Sean Bishop, a good friend of mine, was a guest on this uh, this podcast. And, well, he's also a brilliant um, animator. So he drew me up and he said it was just like inspiration. Bam, he just, you know, drew it up. A fantastic Don't Fucking Shoot Bigfoot shirt. A DFSB shirt in the style of Ghostbusters, if you will. Uh, take a look at that one. There's some stickers. There's new shirts. There's new sizes. I actually got them up to 4XL. I finally was able to do that. For some reason, it just blocked me out at 3XL before. So if you need a 4XL, they're still out there or they are out there now. Uh, please check out all of the new merch. All of that merch goes to helping make this show a better show and actually getting me out to appearances and actual locations, which is something that I really want to do starting this year. So again, take a look at that. Hope you guys like it. There's new merch coming, more new merch coming. Even more is coming on the way. Alrighty, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. That's right, we are back. And like I said... Let's take a look at some UFO encounters in California. Why? Well, because it's my show and I wanted to talk about it this week, I guess. So, you know, there. So the first story checks all the boxes for a UFO, but it is the oddest UFO story I've ever heard. It doesn't have little gray aliens. It doesn't fly away in the blink of an eye, but it does leave just as many questions as other UFO sightings. What was it? Where did it come from? who was flying it, and most importantly for this story, it happened in 1896. November 17th, 1896 to be exact, and because this is a bizarre California UFO encounter, you should be able to guess where it happened. It happened in California. That's right, Sacramento, California. That night, a very rainy, very foggy night, when George Scott, who was the assistant to the Secretary of State at the time, saw a bright light coming out of the clouds. Now, again, this is 1896. There shouldn't be anything up in there. So George Scott convinced some friend there to go out on the observation deck above the Capitol Dome with him to see what he had just saw. And they all witnessed, they don't know how many, but they said there was some friends with them. They all witnessed three lights. Just above the lights was a large, dark, oblong shape. Now, I know what you're thinking. Kurt, that's just a regular UFO. Well, hold on a second. I'm the one telling the story, so just wait, it gets weirder. At the same time, R.L. Lowry, a former street railway employee, saw the lights too. But he also heard something. He said he heard a voice from the UFO say, throw her up higher, she'll hit the steeple. See? Weirder, right? Well, 
RL said that he saw two men seated on a bicycle-like frame pedaling. Now above them was a cigar-shaped body of some length. Now he said the thing also had wheels at the side like the wheels of a Fulton's old steamboat. He said it was an airship. It was also seen to varying degrees by hundreds of people that night. Some just saw the lights, some saw the cigar shape, others saw the whole thing. But again, remember, this was 1896. There were no planes or anything like this. Now, Zeppelins had just become a thing, but really the only things that were out there were just balloons, like hot air balloons. And they didn't match what everyone was seeing that night. Now, not surprisingly, the story was in the newspapers the next day with headlines like, claim they saw a flying airship, strange tales of Sacramento men not addicted to prever prevarication, prevarication, yeah, prevarication, viewed an aerial courser as it passes over the city at night. What was it? Five days after that airship sighting, that airship or another airship, I'll just say an airship, was again seen in Sacramento. Jacob Zemanski had a small telescope and reported the light he was seeing was a lamp, an electric arc light of intense power. He also observed that the light didn't move in a straight line, but seemed to bob in the wind up and down. Now, another witness, a man named Edward Carriger, said that he saw the light as well, but he could also see that cigar-shaped dome. Now, they both separately watched the airship fly across the entire city in 30 minutes. In that time, it was spotted by thousands of people, including the city's deputy sheriff and a district attorney. Now, it also appeared the same night over San Francisco, which is 90 miles away. The mayor of San Francisco was one of the people who spotted it there. And this is where the uh, airship sightings just kind of like take off, because the next few days they were spotted in California, Washington, Canada. So this thing was flying all over, but why? Well, some theories started to emerge, like attorney Airship Collins, who said that he represented a man who built it in Oroville, just 60 miles from Sacramento. According to Collins, the airship was 150 feet long and could carry 15 passengers, which is nothing like was capable at that time. He said it was built on the aeroplane system and has two canvas wings 18 feet wide and a rudder shaped like a bird's tail. He said, I saw the thing ascend about 90 feet under perfect control. But here's the problem there. No inventor ever came forward and Airship Collins, well, he later recanted his statements. Also, who hires an attorney named Airship Collins? If you are an attorney, you don't go by the name Airship Collins. Seems kind of odd that he was only talking about an airship and he said his name was Airship and people still believed him for a little bit of that time. Then another attorney said he represented the wacky inventor and that there were two airships and they were being tested to bomb Havana and that the airship will carry four men and 1,000 pounds of dynamite. But again, no inventor or airship ever came out. And because of this, everyone said, hey, let's stop listening to dumbass attorneys already. Well, I'll assume that's what they said because that's what happened. Because two months went by with no airship sightings. No inventors came forward. No other attorneys came forward. Everybody just kind of stopped with the weird, wacky inventor airship theory. But again, two months went by. Then on February 2nd, 1897, an airship was spotted, but this time over Hastings, Nebraska. 
Then, three days later, it was seen 40 miles further south near the town of Invale. Then it was seen everywhere in Nebraska, and I mean everywhere. February 16th, all over Omaha. A farmer claimed he encountered the airship on the ground under repair. He said it's cigar-shaped about 200 feet long, 50 feet across at the widest point, gradually narrowing to a point at both ends, and then all over the Midwest, it became airship mania, including Texas, Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, and Chicago. But again, even with these sightings in the air and on the ground, no one knew who it was that was flying it, where this airship came from, why it was out there, and when this guy saw it on the ground, he didn't like walk up and say, hey, who are you and what the hell is that thing? Nope. He just stood there and watched two people repair it. Then, on April 15th, near Kalamazoo, Michigan, a newspaper story said that the airship had crashed and exploded. They declared the report to have been like that of heavy ordnance and to have been immediately succeeded by a distant sound of projectiles flying through the air. Here's the problem there. No wreckage was ever recorded by the locals or the police or even that newspaper. So this seems like bullshit to me, but it was seen after this. It was still going around the Midwest. So this airship kept being spotted. Now it never made it to the East Coast. It just simply stopped. People stopped seeing that airship out there. No one credible ever came forward. No airships or plans were ever found or released or seen. Now I will say that I did find a lot of newspapers and press messing with people they kept sending up like paper lanterns so they could be spotted. And then that newspaper could report of their own airship sighting to kind of like boost ratings. But not all of the sightings were paper lanterns. Again, some people saw that cigar shape. Some people saw, saw and heard some people in that cigar shape thing or under it peddling. So just what the hell or who the hell were people seeing all over America in 1896 and 1897? No one knows. Again, nothing has ever come from this. An inventor that could invent something that big, that worked that well, that could travel across the country, would have been rich from this airship, but never came forward. We never found the airship. See what I mean? Not your typical UFO, but it definitely falls under an unidentified flying object. What the hell was it? Don't know. But I want to imagine that it's still out there floating around with old-timey men with big cool mustaches like still yelling it's about to hit a steeple and shit like that. So, an unusual UFO encounter over California, see? But don't worry. The next one is more of what I think you're looking for. Now this one takes place on September 4th, 1964 in Placer County, California. Where 28-year-old Donald Shrum, or Shroom I guess, and his friends, it's... S it's S-H-R-U-M. So 28-year-old Donald Shroom and his friends were out bow and arrow hunting. They were expert hunters. They said that they'd been out there before. They knew what they were doing. But Donald became separated or wandered off from the rest of the guys. And I mean really wandered off, like, a, like quite a distance. He said it was getting dark. So he decided to do what a lot of hunters, especially back then, did. He decided to sleep in the tree for safety. There's a lot of predators out in those woods or out in that area. Not really woods. It was more of like a desert area, but still a lot of trees and shit like that. So he said, uh, I'm going to do what a lot of hunters do. I'm going to go up in the tree. 
secure myself to the tree and sleep there for my own safety. He said while he was up in the 25 to 30 foot tall tree, he noticed a bright white light zigzag seemingly through the trees low to the ground. Now again, this was 1964. He thought it was too high for a flashlight and he said, it kind of looked like a flashlight or a lantern at first bobbing up and down, but it was below the horizon. I saw it go up over a tree and then down and I thought maybe it's a helicopter. So he figures his friends were worried about him and they called a rescue helicopter. So he jumps down from the tree and lights a flare and just starts waving it around Jurassic Park style. And he says that's when the white light stopped, turned towards his direction and came towards him. But it's also when he noticed it was dead silent. He said it was about 50 yards away when he got a good look at it. It was silent, no wings, no propellers, bright white and floating. He said it was a huge cigar shaped thing with three dark panels on it. He said at the tip of the cigar shape was that bright headlight that he was seeing. Well, he does what I think anyone would do. He climbed back up that fucking tree and fast. He said he was covered head to toe in camouflage. So he just stood there motionless watching this cigar shaped ship, this giant cigar shaped ship get closer and closer. He said it was floating about 50 yards, almost the same height as him, but 50 yards away. And that's when he watched the panels and something came out of those side panels, which he realized was a smaller UFO. Now he referred to it as a module or a lander. He said it landed a little farther away from him. He said that the module was a silver domed UFO and he saw it briefly before it landed. He said the other one was really dark. It seemed to almost absorb light, but that little module was tiny and silver and more dome shaped. As he's sitting there silently, not moving, watching this whole thing kind of unfold in front of him, he says he noticed that three beings got out of that module UFO and seemed to start walking towards him. Two of them were humanoid, about five feet tall, in tight-fitting, light-colored uniforms. He, see, he later said, he later said the uniforms were silver white and they seemed to like puff up at like the elbows and the shoulders. He said their heads were covered by a hood or a helmet, but he could make out the huge dark eyes like welder's goggles. And he said that the third one was a robot with orange-white flashlight-like eyes and it walked like a human. He said it was dark metal gray colored. It had almost like armored fingers. Like if you see the old timey like knights in shining armor, like the segmented fingers, that's how he described the, the fingers of this thing. So he says these three beings were looking around the vegetation, but coming closer and closer to where Donald was. Then they both walked up to the tree and looked up at him, just sitting there staring at him in silence. He said he heard a strange cooing or hooting noise coming from the beings and a signal coming from the main UFO that seemed to be instructing the beings where to walk to. So these beings are at the base of the tree now. They're looking up at him and they just start shaking the hell out of the tree, trying to get him out of it, trying to knock him out of the tree. So he's, you know, he's strapped to the trees, holding on, he's not moving. And he says that's when a white vapor came out of the robot's mouth and rose like a fog machine cloud, which knocked Donald out temporarily. So Donald goes on to say, when he came to, he was at the base of the tree and nauseous. He starts freaking out and began throwing lighted matches towards the three beings, which seemed to startle them a little bit, and they kind of backed up from him. 
He even lit his hat on fire and threw that at them, which made them scatter for a moment, but they came back to about 50 feet away, still surrounding the tree. So even though they were a little further away and a little bit freaked out because this dude keeps lighting his shit on fire and throwing at them, he said they were still there, they weren't leaving. So what does he do? Well, he burnt everything in his wallet. One at a time. Dollar bills, there, throw that at him. The wallet, sure, throw that at him. The camouflage shirt, yeah, fuck that, let's throw that at him too. He says that, you know, basically it seemed to keep them away, but they weren't leaving. Well, he's out there bow hunting, so he says, you know what? Time to do it. He grabbed his bow and arrow, got back up in the tree, and actually shot an arrow hitting the robot dead in the chest. Now, he said he chose the robot because he wanted them to get away, but he didn't want to kill a living being. Now, he said when he shot that arrow, he said the arrow sparked off the metal of the robot. Now, he shot two more arrows at them, which made all three beings scatter away. But the downside was he was now stuck in a tree without any more arrows. Now, I'm not a bow and arrow hunter, but I would think if I was a bow and arrow hunter, I would take more than three or four or five or six arrows. I would take a shit ton of arrows with me to actually go out hunting. But, you know, maybe he'd been there for a couple of days and already shot a bunch of arrows and is lazy about recovering them. I don't know. But he said he was out of arrows, stuck up in the tree, and he said that's when a second robot came out of that module UFO. And again, the white vapor came out of its mouth and he passes out again. So this time, Donald wakes up. He's still in the tree and the beings are climbing the tree while the robot stayed at the base of it. So he starts throwing everything else he had, his canteen, everything, trying to hit him on the head, trying to knock them down. And he even starts shaking the tree itself, trying to buck them off it. Now, Donald later said that this continued for most of the night, that they would either be at the base of the tree and try to knock him out of it, or kept trying to climb up into the tree. He said he was smart enough to tie himself to the tree by his belt and kept them at bay until morning when more of the beings arrived. Now, let me pause right here to say he doesn't say whether they were all in that same little module UFO or if they came down from the big one again from the panels. He doesn't really say where these more beings arrive from, but another robot shows up. So, more vapor, he gets knocked out again. This time he wakes up and he's hanging by that belt, but he's still in the tree and the aliens and the robots are gone. So he gets down from the tree, looks around, can't see him anywhere, gets down from the tree and he says that's when he noticed that the aliens seem to have taken most of the stuff that he threw down at them, including coins and shit like that. So, so basically, it seems to me like the aliens just kind of rolled them for some coin. But anyhow, gets down from the tree, goes and finds his friends, and discovers that one of his friends had actually seen the UFO himself. He watched it first thinking it was a shooting star, but then he noticed how oddly it was moving. Now, Donald went on to say, after the incident, for the next two weeks, he was nauseous and his family were really worried that he had radiation poisoning. They said that he really didn't have insurance. He really didn't want to freak anybody out. He didn't want to lose his job. So he just kind of stayed at home to see if he got better. And physically, he definitely seemed to get better. See? Bizarre UFO encounter, right? Complete with robots this time. Look, whatever happened to Donald... He said it haunted him until his dying day. His story has never changed, 
and his wife said that he would have night terrors about the encounter on a fairly regular basis. Absolutely, completely bizarre story. You got robots, you got aliens, you got white vapor, you keep getting knocked out, you shoot arrows at robots. I mean, that is a bizarre UFO encounter. All right, let's get a little bit more recent. That was 1960. Let's get a bit more recent. Let's move down to Barstow for the next one. And this one happened December 12th, 2009. That's when Barstow residents had a surprise UFO encounter when they saw a UFO flying really low streak across the sky above their houses just before dawn. Now, people saw it land or crash onto one of the highways. There's not a lot of specific details on this, and it really pisses me off because it was 2009, but they said right there on the highway, it either landed, some people said it crashed, and people went out to see what happened. They took off to see this UFO, this thing that seemed to either land or crash right on the highway right by their houses. As many of the eyewitnesses were driving there or getting close to that crash or landing site, whatever you want to call it, a bunch of black SUVs sped past them in the same direction and then circled the UFO with their headlights out, basically blinding everyone so no one could get a good look at what the hell this thing was. While the residents were there trying to take pictures and see the UFO, a flatbed truck showed up, went into the circle of SUVs, 10 minutes later, it pulls away from behind those SUVs with a tarped covered object in the back of it that the residents said was about the size of a VW bug. So the flatbed and those SUVs all speed away. Nothing more to see. All right, here are a couple of eyewitness accounts of what happened. My sister just received a call from her stepson from Barstow who attested that a UFO landed on one of the major highways there, presumably Interstate 40 or 15. The UFO was surrounded by a team of black cars. Witnesses are questioning whether this is a government UFO or, quote, the real thing. My sister is waiting for a return call from her stepson. I'll give you more details as they arrive. That same person wrote back later saying, her nephew called today. Apparently the UFO landed or crashed off the road early in the morning when it was still dark outside. The police and black cars arranged themselves so that their headlights were facing out making it difficult for people to see what was happening. My nephew's coworker took two pictures, but they came out somewhat blurry. My nephew's coworker took two pictures, but they came out somewhat blurry. He stated that you could partially see the UFO in one of the pictures. My nephew doesn't have the pictures. His coworkers does. His coworker does. We are still trying to get them. A large military transport was brought in to take the UFO back to the nearby military base. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find these pictures that they're talking about in here. I don't think that anything would have really come up from that with a bunch of headlights pointed at you. You're really not going to see much. You'll probably see that flatbed truck with something under a tarp, and that doesn't help anybody ever. It could be anything under that tarp. So this bizarre UFO encounter, to me, to me sounds like an experimental military craft and not aliens because of how fast the government arrived and the basic description of the thing under the tarp. But it does show that the government has a way to respond and remove UFOs and keep the general public away from the site during retrieval. Something that people said was almost identical to the way that they did it back in Roswell in 1947. It seems to be like the government issued, here's what to do if you have a UFO that's landed or crashed and there happens to be public around it. 
it doesn't seem to have changed over the years. We heard about it in the 60s. We heard about it in the 70s and the 50s. This seems to be the regulation of how the government handles UFO crashes or landings around the public. Like I said, they're fast. They don't acknowledge anything. They keep people confused and in the dark. And then boom, they are gone and they deny everything. So who knows what it was that people saw that night and was taken away, but like I said, I like this one for the government's response to it alone. Alrighty, let's keep moving and go over to Antioch, California for a very quick one. Now this one comes from the Antioch Herald newspaper, April 3rd, 2018. Couple sees what appears to be a UFO over Antioch, Antioch, whatever, Wednesday morning. Antioch resident Paris Price and her fiancé witnessed and took video of what appears to be a UFO over Antioch early Wednesday morning, April 3rd. She said, I feel a little weird about doing this, but I've never experienced something so fascinating. I was referred to find an editor to see if anyone else can come forward to this event or have witnessed similar experiences in our area. The object came close in contact, nearly landing while my fiancé was driving. It was no ball of light up close. I know what I saw. Happened Tuesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, at 12 a.m. around Country Hills and Deerfield. Did anyone else see the phenomena? I'll attach this video to the Facebook page, but I gotta say there's not a lot to it, unfortunately. They were driving, it was nighttime, it was a light in the sky, she was very excited about it, but, you know, take a look at it, see what you think. But because of that one, I say let's stick with Antioch for a second. Because on March 8th, 2012, around 9 p.m., there was another sighting of a UFO. Now, this one lasted three and a half minutes, and here's the description from one of the four witnesses. Okay, I went outside to smoke a cigarette on my front porch when I look up, eye-level perspective, and it was what looked like in the shape of an arrow. Five silent orange or red lights in the sky. They weren't very high up, and it looked like it was by Antioch High School area. They were moving in almost triangular shapes. They were in the sky for about three and a half minutes. And then one by one, the lowest light to the highest light, they fell one at a time. It looks like they were falling to earth and then they faded as they were getting closer. It looked like orange slash red orbs of light, silent light, throbbing, breathing almost. It was most unnatural, not something that is man-made or affiliated. I know that for a fact. They were an inch apart, not too small of lights, like bigger lights, like a little bigger than flashing plane lights in the sky. It was by the Antioch High School. It looked to be by Buchanan Road. So this one could possibly be flares or military training flares. It kind of, they descend like they're saying. But other people said they didn't act like flares falling in the sky. They seemed to like kind of one by one just kind of go off on their own getting lower and lower. Now, so after this, I checked and there have been 58 reported UFOs over Antioch, about 10 a year, going back over 10 years or so. So something is seen pretty often over Antioch. Now here's just a few descriptions given to the National UFO Reporting Center. Uh, in 2018, a circular fireball-shaped object is going up close, is going up into the sky very quickly. So going up into the sky. Again in 2018, speedy orange, oddly shaped UFO during twilight. Completely different time, a few months before that one. 2017, two black dots following commercial air traffic. It was an anonymous report. 
Again in 2017, red and green lights moving over the sky, not like a plane. Floating white objects above Mount Diablo foothills in the sky. Observe bright orange light moving unlike a jet or prop plane that seemed to stop in midair and jerk or rock slightly. Uh, looked up into the sky, saw a ball of blue-green light dash quickly across and disappear. Two orange lights ascending in the sky till no, till no longer visible. Now we're back into 2015. This event was actually two related sightings on the same night at locations within about 10 minutes of each other. An object formed out of nowhere with a bright white light beaming down. That one could be a U.S. Navy missile launch, though. People were saying that it does seem to kind of tie into that same date. Uh, red and blue lights in California seen moving fast in straight lines and slightly changing course. UFO over Burbank Studios in the 134. No, I'm sorry. That's the one in Burbank. Uh, Antioch, a bright blue light flashes every five minutes coming from the southeast. So, again, I can keep going. There's dozens of these. Like I said, there's, what, 50-something, 50 58, did I say? Yeah, 58 reported UFOs over Antioch alone. Some of them can correlate to Navy missile launches and stuff like that, but other ones are complete mysteries. Could they be experimental planes? Sure, maybe, I don't know. But they are definitely bizarre UFOs. Okay, from here, let's go to the main story for this episode. Over to Red Bluff, California. Nighttime, Saturday, August 13th, 1960. Now, I say nighttime because there is some discrepancies among the eyewitnesses. Some say about 9 p.m., some say nothing happened until 11 p.m., some say it was even closer to midnight, some say 1 a.m., but the point is, nighttime, Saturday, August 13th, 1960. This is where, at the very least, 10 people, including two California Highway Patrol officers, saw something. Now, let's focus on these main two witnesses, though. The ones that saw it first, seemingly. That's Officer Charles A. Carson and Stanley E. Scott, who were out on patrol when, well, you know what? I'm just going to read to you from the official report from the officers themselves. So, Officer Carson wrote, Officer Scott and I were eastbound on Hogue Road, east of Corning, looking for a speeding motorcycle when we saw what at first appeared to be a huge airliner dropping from the sky. The object was very low and directly in front of us. We stopped and leapt from the patrol vehicle in order to get position on what we were sure was going to be an airplane crash. From our position outside the car, the first thing we noticed was an absolute silence. Still, assuming it was an aircraft with power off, we continued to watch until the object was probably within about 100 to 200 feet of the ground when it suddenly reversed completely at high speed and gained approximately 500 feet altitude. There, the object stopped, and this time it was clearly visible to both of us, and obviously not an aircraft of any design familiar to us. It was surrounded by a glow making the round or oblong object visible. At each end, or at each side of the object, there were definite red lights. At times, about five white lights were visible between the red lights. As we watched the object move again and perform aerial feats that were actually unbelievable. At this time, we radioed Tehama or Tehama, T-E-H-A-M-A, County Sheriff's Office, requesting they contact local radar base. The radar base confirmed the UFO completely unidentified. Officer Scott and myself, after our verification, continued to watch the object. On two occasions, the object came directly towards the patrol vehicle. Each time it approached, the object swept the area with a huge red light. 
Officer Scott turned the red light on the patrol vehicle towards the object and it immediately went away from us. We observed the object use the red beam approximately six or seven times, sweeping the sky and ground areas. The object began moving closely. Nope. The object began moving slowly in an easterly direction and we followed. We proceeded to the Vena Plains Fire Station where we again were able to locate the object. As we watched it, it was approached by a similar object from the south. It moved near the first object and both stopped, remaining in that position for some time, occasionally emitting the red beam. Finally, both objects disappeared below the eastern horizon. We returned to the Tahama County Sheriff's Office and met Deputy Fry and Deputy Montgomery, who had gone to Los Molinos after contacting the radar base. Both had seen the UFO clearly and described to us what we saw. The night jailer was also able to see the object for a short time. Each described the object and its maneuvers exactly as we saw them. We first saw the object at 2350 hours and observed it for approximately two hours and 15 minutes. Hold on one second. That's my headphones. That's my headphone stitch. Come on. There you go. All righty. All right. Sorry. We observed approximately two hours and 15 minutes. Each time the object neared us, we experienced radio interference. We submit this report in confidence for your information. We were calm after our initial shock and decided to observe and record all we could of the object. Charles Carson. Now, here are a couple more eyewitness testimonies from a Project Blue Book report on that same incident. August 17th, 1960, 1930 hours. Red Bluff, California. A man was driving up Bell Mill Road with his wife and son toward what is commonly called Hog or Hogback Road. Mr. Blacked Out reported that he and his wife, that he and his family, sighted a bright metal object at approximately treetop level, which was flying in a northerly direction. Now, he stated the object was approximately three to four miles away, and the first impression that it was a large helicopter. When he and his family reached the spot where they thought the object to be, they sighted it approximately one half mile away and approximately 100 feet below them. The object appeared to immediately pick up speed, rising out of the canyon, passing over the road in front of the family. It dropped from sight a few moments and then was seen traveling up a branch canyon. The object was described as completely round and approximately 35 to 50 feet in diameter. When it rose from the canyon and passed over the road, it appeared to have a light near the nose. The light had a reddish purple hue. The object was reported to have second light, which was located on the back. The second light appeared as a narrow bluish band. The object was estimated to have a speed of 25 to 35 miles per hour. The other eyewitness from Project Blue Book. August 17, 1960, approximately 2100 local hours. Department of Correction, Mrs. Blacked Out, Forest Lookout, and Mrs. Blacked Out sighted an unidentified flying object from the Forestry Lookout at Inskip Mountain. The object was described as a dull red light above the horizon. The object was reported to have faded and reappeared several times in gradual cycles. The object was reported to be generally stationary. At approximately 2130 hours, another object was sighted which was similar to the first, however appeared to be moving from the right to left at a constant elevation. So, as you probably have guessed, Project Blue Book got involved eventually, and I'll tell you about their BS findings in a bit. Also, I'm going to read you a bunch of newspaper articles from around that same time and around that general area that I could find. But before I get to those, it's grain of salt time. Because it appears the officers were interviewed on the local radio station KBLF on Tuesday, August 16th, 1960. But 
I can't find the actual recordings of it. I can just find the transcript. So grain of salt time from a lot of sources. This seems to be legit, but I can't find the actual recording. So I don't know if this is the real thing or not. But here is the transcript or most of the transcript from Radio KBLF interview of Officers Carson and whatever the hell his other name was and Scott. Officers Carson and Scott. Where did you first spot the unidentified flying object? East of Corning, about four miles east of Corning to be exact. You were on the Hogue Road where the people know the area around here, right? Now what you spotted, we have heard a lot of talk and people have called it different things and everything else. So the best way possible, Mr. Scott, if you could more or less identify what it looked like from where you were at this time of the evening. And that's when he goes on to say the whole thing about it looks like an aircraft uh, airliner coming down. They were worried about it. The interviewer goes on to say, how far were you from this when you sighted it the first time? And he says, it's hard to say, not knowing the size of the object, it is possible that we're close as a half a mile or anywhere up to a mile and a half to two miles at the closest. Well, let me ask you this. The very first moment you saw the unidentified flying object, what was your first feeling? He said, at first I didn't have any feeling at all until the object had performed a few maneuvers and then appeared to be coming straight towards the patrol car. At that time, I did get scared and the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I was quite shocked. The interviewer asked, was there ever a feeling of fear in any way or was it mostly curiosity or shock like you say? And the officer said, well, I did feel fear just one time when it first started towards us and after that it was more curiosity. We were then trying to find out what it was. And the interviewer says, well, Mr. Scott more or less explained what it looked like. Once again, it looked like it had either a row of lights or a row of windows on the side of the object. Is this right? And the officer says, yes, it appeared to be windows. The windows were only visible when the object would turn at a certain angle to us. It appeared to have to manipulate the machine in order to get this beam to sweep in the sense that the beam wasn't movable in itself, that the entire object had to move to move the beam light, this fixed light. Would you say it was round? The light or the object? No, the object itself. And the officer says, yeah, the object was round. And the, uh, the interviewer says, in other words, if someone would say a flying saucer, that is what it looked like? And both officers said, yes, that's right. And he says, and it was supposedly hovering over the ground at a certain altitude for a certain length of time in that area? And he says, yes, that's quite, that's correct. Quite considerable lengths of time it hovered over the ground and appeared motionless. So the interviewer says, well, you know, a lot of people have been talking about weather balloons and illusions and so forth. Right now, I'd like to point out that we have with us two members of the California Highway Patrol, and they in no way are seeing any illusions. The big thing we want to point out, and again, in checking with the weather bureaus in the town, there were two balloons let out with red and white lights, but these balloons were never in this area where the officers were. And so, if anyone has any idea that this is an illusion, no, it's not. And something else, too, I would like to bring out the fact that you or Mr. Scott put the red light on the object. And the officer said, yes, yeah. And he said, well, what happened then? Well, when the object moved away from us and we followed it in the patrol car, at which time we lost sight of it. We stopped after several miles and got out of the patrol car. And as I recall, we climbed on the hood of the car to look over a knoll. There it was looking right back at us. It was hovering about a mile away. At this time, it appeared to be about a mile away. And he says it started to appear closer. The interviewer says, how big would you say the object was? And they said, as large 
or larger than an airliner. So then the interviewer goes on, they ask a bunch of questions back and forth, but I'm going to get to the good stuff. In your own opinion, do you have any idea what it might be? And they said, not in the slightest. I wouldn't even care to form an opinion. I would like to know what it is, though. And he goes on to say, this was Saturday night. I heard reports that it was also sighted last night by residents in the area and seems to be coming back to the same spot. Do you think there might be a possible chance that it could return to this same spot tonight or sometime in the future? And the officer said, well, could be. We don't know. The officers go on to say that they couldn't believe what they were seeing. The fact that there were other officers from different agencies had seen the object, residents of the area, people traveling. There were a lot of people that had saw this object. And the interviewer said, yeah, you know, the object was seen by you, three deputies, a couple of prisoners from jail, some police, uh, some city police, plus some residents from that area. It would really be quite a thing to come across something like this. Were you in the area on a regular patrol? And they said, yeah, we were on a routine patrol. We were only in the car in the county that night and we were covering the entire county. They said, did you, you know, did you report this immediately? They said, no, we reported it to the dispatcher at the sheriff's department. We don't have a dispatcher at the highway patrol office here at Red Bluff. And they said they in turn sent down three deputies. Was that the idea? And they said, yes, that's what they said they did. They said, yes, that is what they did. The interviewer goes on to say, you say then it was more of a saucer shape or a cigar shape. The way you described it in this afternoon, it could be either one. And the officer said, it could have been either one, not being directly under it and not getting the full view of the underside of the thing or never having the machine turn across ways in front of us. It would be very difficult to say, even in the daytime, you could not determine whether it was round or oblong. Then the uh, interviewer goes on to say, well, when it did move away, did it move away slowly or did it do this all at once with speed? And the officer said, it moved away fairly fast. It moved so swiftly that we lost sight of it. That's when we lost it the first time. And the interviewer says, all right, if someone said to you that they felt you saw a balloon or an optical illusion, what would you say? And they said, I would say that I wish that person had been sitting where I was and I had been sitting at home. And he said, what about you, Mr. Scott? And he said, yeah, that's right. It was definitely not a balloon or an optical illusion. We saw something out there. It was a UFO, an unidentified flying object. We have an unidentified flying object. Maybe never again. We'll, maybe we'll see it never again. Then again, we might. This is in the area on Highway 99 East. As a guess, it was approximately 200 feet in diameter had weird lights and so forth, and hovering over the ground down there and shifting from back and forth. Once again, it was not an optical illusion. It was there. So they, you know, basically go on to say, how would you like to wrap it up? And the, and the officers basically said, look, we saw something. We don't know what it was. It was an unidentified flying object. We saw it do maneuvers that balloons couldn't do. It was doing things that had lights that just weren't man-made. And so that's about it for the interview that they did on that KBLF. Now, there's a lot more to it, but it's just kind of regurgitating some of the same information that the officer's report had and that I've already talked to you guys about. So I didn't want to keep going over everything. I kind of just cherry picked the big stuff. But the big takeaway there is on air. Being questioned, they said this was definitely not a balloon. This was definitely not man-made. It was definitely not an optical illusion. From everything I could gather... Here's the best timeline that I could make of the entire incident. So we got officers Carson and Scott. They make their sighting of an object in the east. They radio it in. Officers Fry and Montgomery hear the report. They go and check it out, and they see it as well. Officer Montgomery makes a radio report of the object possibly landing. 
and then maybe Fry took off. I, I don't know. But then we have a jailer who confirms he brings out four people from the jail out to see the object in the sky as well. Uh, according radio, police radio, the object was moving so they could see it. I'm talking a lot of credible witnesses from different vantage points. The Air Force Base, the local base nearby, seeing it on the radar. A lot of people were witnessing it from different vantage points, all seeing the same objects. No one having a clue as to what the hell anyone was looking at. But again, they all seem to agree this wasn't a balloon. This wasn't an optical illusion. This is important. I keep saying that same thing over and over again for a reason. I'll get to that in a second. But let's get to those newspaper articles. Wednesday, August 17th, 1960, the Albuquerque, New Mexico Journal writes about the incident. USAF probes UFO report. The Air Force Tuesday said it was investigating reports of a football-shaped object as big as an airliner reported seen over Northern California Saturday night. Two highway patrolmen, yeah, blah, 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 that they, uh, they saw the object, row of lights, blah, blah, blah. Object vanished over the eastern horizon. Han Hamilton Air Force Base officers said we are required by regulations to look into all UFO reports for analysis by experts at Wright-Patterson, Dayton, Ohio. Uh-oh. Guess who that's gonna be? If you said Project Blue Book, give yourself a star. Uh, it goes on to say, up to the present, uh, the Air Force has been able to explain all UFO appearances except in one-tenth of one percent of the cases. In the exception, there has not been enough information for the report to be pinned down. So they're already debunking it before they even start their investigation. Then, the Red Bluff California Daily News also wrote about the incident on the 17th. Mystery flying object puzzles. The unidentified flying object seen flittering around Tahama County Saturday night remains a mystery today. Officials at the local radar base claim no knowledge of this strange object and deny tracking it on their radar screens. Well... We know that's not true. Uh, the article goes on to say, however, Major M.J. Leroy, commander of the base, said a complete report of the incident, as reported by the highway patrolmen Stanley E. Scott and Charles A. Carson, has been forwarded to the Portland Air Force Defense Secretary, Defense Sector, for investigation. Rule Bohm, captain of the local patrol office, states today that he also sent a complete report to the patrol operations office in Sacramento. In the meantime, it appears all will remain in the dark other than for the descriptions of eyewitnesses of a huge oblong object emitting a violently red light which performed what is stated as unbelievable aerial feats. Then, August 20th, 1960, the edition of the Eureka, California Humboldt Standard. Air Force SIFS Tahama Flying Saucer reports. An Air Force intelligence officer has been routing check into the Tahama County sightings of an unidentified flying object or objects. Dwayne Billsland, a supervisor of criminal investigation at McClellan Air Force Base in Sacramento, said Friday he would question everyone who claimed to have seen the object last weekend. Billsland started with two California Highway Patrolmen who reported seeing a strange object last Saturday night. I consider myself a referee in the game of flying saucers, he said. Justice Wyman... Information officer at McClellan said that the Air Force makes the check whenever anyone reports having seen a UFO. He said that no reports have ever turned up anything unexplainable in California. Alrighty, so we got a lot of people already debunking the stuff before the investigations even happen. So, what did Project Blue Book say about all this? Well, they did acknowledge the numerous various witnesses and their locations to the object. They said 
As evidenced by exhibits I and M of attachment number one in this document, there were many sightings of UFOs in the California area between the 12th and the 20th of August 1960. These exhibits also confirm the fact that the circumstances surrounding sightings were generally the same. So the first thing they said is, yep, whole lot of eyewitnesses. Yep, they all saw the same thing. Project Blue Book also confirmed military had seen something on their scope at the same time. August 16th, 1960, ATIC, the Aerospace Technical Intelligence Center, made telephone contact with the 859th Radar Squadron, Red Bluff Air Station. The 859th is tied with Portland Air Defense Sector, blah, blah, blah. And they reported that, that nothing had appeared on their scopes, which called for a scramble between the 12th and the 16th of August in 1960. Contact was again established with the 859th on November 17, 1960. At this time, Major Leroy denied having informed patrolmen that an unidentified object was on his scope of the unit that night of the sighting. So, Major Leroy says, oh, no, no, no. I didn't tell a bunch of people that I had something on my site that I couldn't explain while people were seeing a UFO in the area. I don't know what that was about. Bullshit. That's the first one. Okay, but here comes the big bullshit. Their bullshit conclusion. The conclusion of the ATIC is that the sightings which occurred in the Red Bluff area were due to atmospheric refraction. It is an impossible task to determine what the exact light source was for each specific incident, but the planet Mars was the most probable culprit in the instance of the highway patrolman. The planet at the time of the sightings was just below the horizon and probably hoved into view to the refraction of its light by the atmosphere. A contributing factor to the sightings could have been the layer of smoke which hung over the area in a thin stratiform layer. The smoke came from forest fires in the area and hung in a layer due to stable conditions associated with the inversion. Okay. So they said that those two cops, the main guys, the highway patrolmen, didn't see a silver oblong object with windows and lights and everything else that they followed and saw maneuver and move up and down and move everywhere. They said, nope, what you were seeing was Mars and mirages caused by recent forest fires in the area. Bullshit. Alrighty, now let's jump. When the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena wrote the following about the Red Bluff incident. False AF answer in Red Bluff case. In utter disregard of astronomical records, the Air Force has issued an impossible explanation of the August 13th and 14th UFO sightings in the vicinity of Red Bluff, California. A check of August 13th and 14th star positions by NICAP reveals these facts. One, Mars and the two stars were below the horizon, invisible, when the police sighted the UFO at 11.45, August 3rd. Two, Mars did not appear until an hour later. Two other stars were at the horizon at 1 a.m. and at 3 a.m. Apparently, the Air Force gambled that no one would check the star positions when they risked this answer. NICAP even talked to Officer Carson about the whole thing. They said extracts from Officer Carson's letter of November 14, 1960 and answers to Advisor Webb's questions. We made several attempts to follow it, or should I say get closer to it, but the object seemed aware of us and we were more successful remaining motionless and allow it to approach us, which it did on several occasions. There were no clouds or aircraft visible. The object was shaped somewhat like a football, or should I say the outside of the object were clear to us. The glow was emitted by the object was not a reflection of other lights, 
the object was solid, definitely not transparent. At no time did we hear any type of sound except radio interference. The object was capable of moving in any direction, up and down, back and forth. At times, the movement was very slow. At times, it was completely motionless. It moved at high, extremely high speeds, and several times, we watched it change direction or reverse itself while moving at unbelievable speeds. As to the official explanation, I have been told we saw northern lights, a weather balloon, and now refractions. I served four years with the Air Force. I believe I am familiar with the northern lights, also weather balloons. Officer Scott served as a paratrooper during the Korean conflict. Both of us are aware of the tricks light can play on the eyes during darkness. We were aware of this at the time. Our observations and estimations of speed, size, etc. came from aligning the object with fixed objects on the horizon. I agree, we find it difficult to believe what we were watching, but no one will ever convince us that we were witnessing a refraction of light. Signed, Charles A. Carson, California Highway Patrol. Then, in 1966, six years after the incident, atmospheric physicist James McDonald of the University of Arizona got interested in this incident, and in 1967, a year after doing a ton of his own research, he wrote, I have interviewed one of the two California Highway Patrolmen who were the principal witnesses and spoken with, other, with two other persons in that area who were involved in the incident. Officers Carson and Scott driving east, uh, and then he goes through the whole thing. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, he goes on to detail the fact that they were definitely following it. It was moving in different directions. It was a two-hour long sighting that the object definitely had two lights. It was not a refraction. It was not the weather. It was not a weather balloon. It was not the northern lights. The full account is too involved to relate here, but it is important to point out that a number of witnesses confirmed the object from various viewing points in the county, and a call to the AF radar unit brought confirmation they were tracking an unknown moving in the manner reported by Carson and Scott. So again, he got them to confirm radar contact. Mars, Northern Lights, do not have radar contact at all. He uh, goes on to mention the fact that, uh, that immediately after that, people at the radar base started saying that there was no radar sightings. They were told to say this, that the radar man on duty at the time was told to deny everything. And that the Blue Book uh, explanation about it being Mars was complete crap. Basically, he was saying that uh, based on the fact that these two, based on the fact that these objects were not seen at that time, none of the three celestial objects were even in California skies at that time. This cannot be the explanation. So ultimately, an independent man, a guy who knows what he's talking about, an atmospheric physicist spent a year of his time investigating this incident, got the radar people to now admit that, oh yeah, there actually was radar contact. We were lying about that. We were told to deny everything. He talked to the two policemen. He had them tell him exactly what they saw, when they saw, which direction they were looking, where they were looking. And he said it could not at all, 100% could not have been Mars or the Northern Lights or a star that night. That they were seeing. He says, without a doubt, this was an unidentified physical object in the sky performing aerial maneuvers that a balloon could not do. So there you have it. In a nutshell, anyway, a very huge 
Red Bluff UFO incident as best as I can lay it out. I know that kind of went everywhere, but in the end, everybody who is reputable has said it could not have been the stars, could not have been Mars, couldn't, couldn't have been the Northern Lights, couldn't have been a weather balloon because of what the object was doing. These officers never changed their story. They never were bullied to deny what they saw. It had radar contact. It was real. A ton of people from around, a variety of people, from residents to jailed people to police officers to highway patrolmen, all saw the same thing that night. And to this day, it shocks me the amount of research that has been done and that no one can say what people saw that night. There were no experimental aircraft in the area that we know of. That has been checked as well. Nothing to explain everything everyone saw. And yet, this story doesn't get the coverage it deserves, in my opinion. It's a huge UFO story. It is insane how many reputable people saw something and how long they watched it for. And no explanations. It wasn't a weather balloon. wasn't experimental aircraft. Year after year, people check off what it couldn't have been. It definitely wasn't this. It definitely wasn't that. It only leaves us with a few things. It was a UFO. It was real. It was doing things that couldn't have been done by aircraft today. And no one can explain where it came from and where it went. I love this story because of Blue Book's obvious bullshit explanation that they just kind of pull out no matter what, how quickly they came up with, oh, no, it was that. It was refraction of light. It was, uh, it was a forest fire. Uh, it was Mars. Before they even did the investigation, all they had to go on were two officers that weren't afraid to tell their story. And that's really important because a lot of people, even to this day, are afraid to come forward because they are afraid to be mocked or ridiculed or fired by what they saw. And these two officers said, nope, F that. This is what we saw. That's what those cops saw. That's what that jailer saw and those prisoners saw and those residents saw. And everyone came forward. Everyone stuck to their guns. And this story is out there because of it. Alrighty, what did you guys think of the bizarre California UFO encounters? They run the gambit of probably two crazy dudes in a weather balloon in the 1800s to an absolute 100% UFO encounter that two highway patrolmen saw. And in the middle, you got some guy firing bow and arrows at a freaking robot that keeps gassing them out up in a tree. Absolutely bizarre UFO encounters. Well, I hope you guys like this one. Sorry that this one took a little bit longer to get out. See, see why this sucks that it, it got erased the first time? There was a lot in this one. A lot. And I'm sure I did it just about as good as I did it the first time, but I always like doing them the first time because I get really into these stories. They're incredibly cool stories, and it bums me out after all of that work that I lose the file, that the file is unrecoverable. But I think it's happened twice in the 112 episodes or wherever I'm at right now, whatever number of episodes I'm at right now. Yeah, 112. So it's only happened twice in that 112. It's not the worst, you know, those aren't the worst odds. I'll continue to use Audacity until I get a better product, which I think I'm going to ask the guys from Bigfoot Collectors Club what they use to edit theirs because I know they're not using Audacity and they don't seem to have these issues as well. 
So maybe I'll buy a new product next month with my patron money. Once again, thank you to the patrons. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Thank you all for the amazing reviews and comments. Uh, feel free to please go to Apple. I know it sounds dumb. No one listens to this on Apple. That I mean, people do, but not a lot. Please go to Apple and leave a, you know, a rating and a review, a five-star rating and a review. It does help get this podcast out there. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell strangers, tell everyone to listen to Paranormal Almanac because every little bit helps. The more of these I can do, the more I can get out, the better I can make them. I can't thank you guys enough for all your support. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. It's the only one that is 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 the only one